Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Grace is fundamental to the Christian faith. Every other world religion requires that you somehow earn God's favor. But Christian or Christianity teaches that God saves and forgives people based on his grace alone. Jehovah's Witnesses can knock on as many doors as they like. Mormons could ride their bikes until their legs fall off. Buddhists can practice meditation until they fall asleep. And Hindus can do yoga until the sacred cows come home. It doesn't matter what a human being does. Okay, those are all things that other religions require you to do. It doesn't matter what a human being does. It's all for nothing without God's grace. Grace is the foundational idea underneath the entire Christian faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I hope you know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a gift from God. And as soon as you work for something, it is no longer a gift. But God's grace doesn't stop there. Once a person is saved, God continues to graciously equip them with the ability to live a Christian life. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And he doesn't do this begrudgingly. His grace abounds, Paul says. It overflows and rushes to us. In other words, God enjoys forgiving us, and he is pleased to equip us for living godly lives. I say all this about the grace of God because Titus 2 uh, makes mention of it. And it says, For the grace of God has appeared. There is not a single moment in human history that fits this description more than Jesus' incarnation. Titus 2.11 is a clear reference to the advent or the arrival of Christ. And Paul made a similar remark to his other protege, Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, where he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The Apostle John 
described the coming of Jesus into the world in a very similar way. He says in John 1, 14, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Looking back at Titus 2, verse 11, the Greek word for appeared, the grace of God has appeared. That word gives us the English word epiphany. An epiphany is a sudden or striking realization. Okay, so up until the point of Jesus' arrival, God's grace had always been around and at work. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, the grace of God was more clearly realized. When Jesus stepped into our world, it was like God turned on a light switch. And so everyone could see his grace. <clears throat> 2,000 years ago, Jesus was bringing salvation for all people, verse 11. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a Christian radio host as he interviewed seminary students. Now, that's code for people who are in college being trained to become pastors. Now, in fairness, this was a theologically liberal school, a school that doesn't uh, really trust um, what we would call Christianity as it has been for thousands of years. And so he walked up to several students. Remember, these are pastors in training. And he said, help, I've got a knife in my back. There's 30 seconds before I bleed out. I know there's a God and I want to be right with him before I die. What should I do? Now, this would be a golden opportunity for an evangelical Christian it's not every day that someone asks you about salvation. Right? Usually you would have to initiate that conversation. But these seminary students each gave a shocking answer. Their responses seem to agree. All agree. You don't have to do anything. Everyone is going to heaven no matter what, they said. It doesn't matter what you do or what you believe. Now, people actually believe this. It's a view called universalism. And Titus 2.11 is often used to support it. But Paul isn't saying that Jesus brought salvation for every single person who has ever lived. Jesus' mere arrival did not justify or forgive each and every person who has ever lived. Instead, the Greek word for all means as many as or whosoever, or all types of. So this verse truly means God's grace to its fullest extent will be provided to as many as who believe in him. And this will include all types of people. Listen to Revelation 7, 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Young people, old people, men, women, people on Crete, people in America, there's no border that God's gospel cannot tear down. Now, I do want to make it clear, the question of who will be saved is not a question about the value of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
His atonement, as we call it, certainly could have covered the sins of everyone. And there is a sense in which God desires that all people repent. Paul told Timothy to pray for leaders, kings, and all people because God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2. You'll find that in verses 3 through 6. That being said, God has revealed to us that many people will not be saved. Jesus said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Along with Jesus' arrival and atonement comes his teaching. He taught us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, according to Paul in verse 12. This is Paul's explanation of repentance. Repentance is key to the Christian life. When Jesus saves you, there will be a turning away from sin. It won't be perfect, but it should be noticeable. Repentance includes more than just a stopping point, however. It also marks a starting point for godliness in one's life. In the next part of the verse, Paul explains the behaviors we must start. He says, live, control, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So there's a pattern to the Christian life. Put down, pick up. Put off, put on. Ephesians 4, 24 says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, be, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Titus 2.12 mentions three different areas of discipleship, or growth, for the Christian life. There's working on yourself, that's self-control. There's serving others, which Paul says is being upright. And there's living for God or being righteous, having a godly life. It matters to God that you are self-controlled, a good neighbor, and citizen who is devoted to Him. Uh, and so the question for you would be, in which area of life do you think you need the most work? With yourself, having self-control, uh, maybe when you're all alone and no one is there, to hold you accountable? Or do you need more help in your relations with others? Do you struggle getting along with other people? Do you find yourself constantly having fights and arguments? Or finally, is it your relationship with God? You feel like you are just far from God right now. Which area of your life needs the most work? Uh, your relationship with others, with God, or how you are just by yourself? As we move on to verse 13, I want you to look back to verse 11 and notice how it speaks of salvation from the punishment of sin. Verse 12 discussed the salvation from the power of sin. And now verse 13 will discuss salvation from the presence of sin. Until Jesus saved you, the punishment of sin was looming over your life. And until Jesus sanctifies you, the power of sin may still have a hold on you. 
But as a Christian, it is God's plan to rescue you not only from the punishment, but also from the power of sin. At one point in our lives, sin had total control of us. But now, as Christians, we fight against the power of sin with the power of the Holy Spirit, who supplied the power to raise Jesus from the dead, Romans 8.11 says. So if there is a particular sin in your life that you continue to struggle with, don't give up. And you can pray and say, God, uh, you know, fill me with the Spirit so that I may not sin against you. Now, if it's hard to persevere for you, just remember, one day you'll never have to deal with sin ever again. It won't even be an issue. In the meantime, Christians are to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One day, Jesus will remove us from the presence of sin. You won't wake up and have to hear about another mass shooting. You won't have to deal with broken relationships. You won't have those personal struggles with sin anymore. This verse also refers to Jesus as our God and our Savior. Jesus' power over sin proves that he is no less than God himself. Only God can forgive sins. In Isaiah 43.25, the Lord says, I am he who takes away your sins. And yet, Jesus forgave many people of their sins throughout his ministry. Listen to a story in Mark 2. When he returned to Capernaum, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So God alone forgives sins. And Jesus here is called our great God and Savior. And so he can forgive us. This God who has the power to make eternal decisions, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's verse 14 of Titus 2. God has made us his children, his own special people. The Greek actually says his peculiar people. Now, that's not a bad thing, even though we use the word in a negative way nowadays. Jesus redeemed us to be his own people. And I've got news for you. You aren't saved to sit. You are saved to serve. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 We are God's masterpiece, his poema in the Greek, his handiwork, and never before did an artist have such raw materials to work with. According to Ephesians 2, we were spiritually dead, acting like children of Satan and following the ways of the flesh before God redeemed us. 
But even though that was the case, God saved us and turned us into his workers. God not only cares that you do good works, though, he also cares about how you do them. So when you do your good works, serving at church, raising children, um, loving your spouse, we talked in recent chapters, working your job, honoring your parents, etc. You need to do these good works with passion, with fervor, and with zeal, as this verse says. Now, we don't use this word zeal all too often, so let me give you a picture of what it might look like. Imagine a pot of water sitting over a piping hot stove. Eventually, the water begins to boil and bubble until it spills over the edges of the pot. In the same way, we need to have our hearts and minds so centered on God and His Word that our beliefs spill out into every aspect of our lives. That is zeal. Or think about it like this. A fire always spreads. When you light a piece of paper on one end, soon enough the entire thing will be consumed. So if you and I are truly set on God before long, our entire lifestyle will show it. Here's the real reason why we need to be zealous. God never does anything half-heartedly. He is zealous. In Zechariah 1.14, God says, I am exceedingly jealous, which is the same Hebrew word for zealous. God's zeal is what motivated him to send Jesus to earth, he says in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's zeal will be the cause of Jesus' second coming, too. Isaiah 59, 17 says, He put on righteousness as his breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. That's talking about Jesus' second coming as a warrior as the, uh, the powerful judge. There's even a story in Jesus' earthly ministry when we get to see his zeal in action. It comes from John 2, 13 and 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now Jesus never acted like this when he was insulted. He never did anything this extreme when other people were disrespected. But when God was being dishonored by the religious leaders of his day, 
Jesus had this extremely zealous response, and it was the exact right response. Since God is zealous for his work, and Jesus was zealous during his time on earth, what makes you think he wouldn't want us to be zealous while we live our lives? In everything we do, we must be all in. If you're going to be somewhere, be all there. If you come to church, pray with the people there, volunteer, and get plugged in. If you give to a church or ministry, don't do it with a bad attitude. Be generous and cheerful, and don't do it because you feel forced. If you get married and have kids, raise your kids to love the Lord and pray with them as you cook them dinner or tuck them in at night. If you work a job, you should put lots of effort into it and perform it uh, at the best of your ability. So I hope you see, do you see, that good works won't get you into heaven, but they should follow you there. Declare these things, Paul says to Titus in the last verse. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here Titus is told how he can do his good works with zeal. His role in all of this was to preach God's word with boldness and authority. And this was another difficult task for Titus. Because good preaching is rarely popular, but it is always necessary. And he had a great example to follow, not only in Paul, but also in Jesus. Listen to what people said about Jesus after his Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Jesus spoke with much more authority than any other preacher of his day. How so? For one, he walked the earth as God in human flesh. <laughs> but also, while other teachers were caught up in myths and their own ideas, Jesus preached from the Old Testament. He was a Bible preacher. The Sermon on the Mount has nine direct references to the Old Testament, and every verse is tied to it in some way. In, in, the, in, the, uh, in fact, let's take Jesus' ministry as a whole. In the 1,800 New Testament verses where Jesus is speaking, 180 of them, 10%, are reciting Scripture. He, he makes that many quotes. And that'd be like if you quoted a Bible verse every 10 sentences. One final relevant application for this passage in Titus 2 is that Titus was told to teach this letter at his church. Declare these things. Pastors in Jesus' church still have this responsibility. 1 Peter 4.11 says, Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. The things that are taught in Titus and the rest of the Bible need to be at the center of our studies today. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join as we begin Titus 3 in the next episode.